We turn our attention this morning to the city of Ephesus, where we are beginning this journey to understand from Acts, Luke's, Luke's account in Acts, the city of Ephesus, for which Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians that we'll be moving into in a couple of weeks. Just to place ourselves in biblical history, to put the whole Bible together for you, we have the creation of the world here and us over here, all jammed together. You have Abraham about 4,000 B.C., David at about 1,000 B.C., split of the northern and southern kingdom, 400-year gap, actually the, the apostles, 400-year gap, the birth, and, the birth and life of Jesus Christ occurring around 30, 30 A.D., and now we have the apostle Paul visiting Ephesus around 50 A.D., which is where we find ourselves today. As we go into God's word, let us pray and ask for his blessing upon it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak through your word, Lord, that you would speak your gospel, that your gospel would be visible in us. And Father, I do ask this day that the things that are of you would be heard, would be heard clearly and deeply, and the things that are not of you would be forgotten. And so, Lord, would you send your spirit to descend on us in this moment, that you would be honored and that you would be glorified, and that, you're, and that you would be seen in your people, and that people would come to know you because of the lives of your people living for you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, growing up, there were, there were no days in my household growing up that were quite like the days when my Aunt Betty would come to town. We lived in D.C., she lived in Atlanta, and she would periodically come to visit us, and she had this Honda CRV hatchback, and CRV, CRX, whatever it is, the small little hatchback, and she would come at all kinds of hours of the night, and she would arrive at our house, and she was every young boy's dream. She would arrive with a trunk filled with a trunk of fireworks, and not just the little fireworks. I mean, she would have mortars, and she would have a cannon to launch these things off. It was fantastic as a kid. But there was always this, and so I knew that whenever she arrived, that the days ahead were about to be quite different than anything for the days before that they had been. And we also, whenever she would tell us that she was coming, we ever, never really quite knew what that mean, what that would mean. Because different things would occur on her travel up, travels up to our house. So one Christmas she was coming up to visit us, supposed to be there by dinner time. This is in pre-cell phone days. Didn't arrive by dinner time. Didn't arrive by bedtime. Didn't arrive by the middle of the night. My parents finally said she'll get here when she gets here. Turned on the front porch light, turned on the hall light. And it was understood, having done this before, that when she would come in, she would turn off the lights, lock the door, and go to bed. Well, on this particular night, why it took her so long, and this just gives you a little bit a picture of her personality, she was driving her little hatchback, going up the road. She was like, you know what, I can make it a little bit further on this tank of gas. And she ran out of gas on the side of on the road. Being that this was not an uncommon occurrence, she took the gas tank out of the back of her car, walked up the road, down the exit to the gas station, filled up her gas can, walked back to her car, put the gas in her gas tank. She then drove to the gas station, and being that it was so cold after that long walk, went to the gas station to get a cup of coffee. Having been warmed by her cup of coffee, she got into her car and she drove off, not having filled up her gas tank. <laughs> having run out of gas again, she then takes her gas tank out of the car, walks up the road, down the exit to the gas station, fills up her gas tank, walks back to the car, gets in the car, drives to the gas station, being chilled again. She goes in and grabs a second cup of coffee, only to leave moments later a second time, not having filled up her gas tank. Breaks down at the side of the road again, grabs her gas tank, walks up the road, off the exit to the gas station, fills up her tank of gas, walks back to the car, puts the tank, in the tank of gas in the car, drives up to the road, and this time, still wanting a cup of coffee after being chilled, she fills up her tank first and 
then goes in and gets her cup of coffee. But as a young boy, it was great anticipation when Aunt Betty would arrive. She was a ton of fun, remarkable lady, enough off-kilter to mesmerize a young boy. And, um, and, I would, and I would, there was this great anticipation when she would come. And so any night that she was about to come to our house, I could never sleep those nights, always waiting for her to arrive. And I would wait, and I'd and I wake up, and I wanted to wonder if she was there or not, and, and wanted to know if she had arrived. And I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I'd open my door, and I'd walk out, and I'd look down the hallway to see if the light had been turned off and to see if the front porch light had been turned off. Because I knew that if the light was off, the next day was about to be quite different. The next day was about to be unlike anything I had probably ever seen before. You know, the Christian life should be visible. The Christian life should be evident. That when Jesus takes hold of your life, the days ahead should be very different than anything they were before. And if you are one who became a Christian as an adult, there should be a noticed difference in your life from before you were a Christian to after that. And if you are one who's known Jesus your whole life, the gospel should be seen in you. It should be visible in you. It should be noticeably different that other people look at you and say, you know what, there's something different about that person. You know what? The front porch light has been turned off, if you will. Life has changed. Here in the city of Ephesus, we see the gospel entering into this city for the very first time. And the gospel, as the gospel enters in, it brings about dramatic change. Not only change in individual Christians' life, but change within the culture itself. Because the gospel should be seen. It should be visible. It should be noticed that the front porch light is no longer on and that the, and that the days ahead are different. We're going to work through this passage in several different chunks as we dive into it. Where we last left off in Ephesus, Apollos had come through preaching the gospel. Several people had become believers. Apollos left and the apostle Paul came in. He clarified some of the teaching that was there. And in clarifying the teaching, he, the church there grew. And Paul stayed for several years teaching um, about Jesus Christ and teaching the gospel in that community. In one of these episodes, shortly before Paul left, here is what happens. Is that the gospel was understood, it was heard, believers were being converted, and it was noticed that the conduct of the lives of believers had changed dramatically. Here's how Paul records it. Up until this moment, Paul was doing unusual and extraordinary things and extraordinary miracles demonstrating that Jesus Christ was superior to all pagan deities. And he writes this, Luke writes this, And it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greek, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And there are a number of those who had practiced magic arts, brought, about their, brought their books together, and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the, Lord, the word of the Lord continued to increase and continued to prevail mightily. The message of Jesus requires a total life change. It should be visible within us. There should be a change within our conduct. Here in Ephesus, these new converts to Jesus Christ confess, after becoming believers in Jesus, confess their sins. They confess what they've been a part of, and they make a complete break with their past. Notice that 
the books that they have, the books about magic arts and divination, they didn't resell them to other people to make a profit. No, they burned them so that nobody else would be led astray by, by, by them. It was a radical change in their conduct. It's similar today, that when someone becomes a Christian, what happens is that person repents. That is, they do a U-turn. They stop trusting themselves, and they trust in Jesus Christ. And then when they do so, there are these, this amazing wealth of things that God does through Jesus Christ in us. All of a sudden, by trusting in Christ, your, your sins are forgiven. The wrongs that you have done and the good things you failed to do are are wiped away and you are declared not guilty. The punishment that is due to you for the wrongs that you have done, Jesus Christ takes that punishment himself. The shame and regret you have is taken away and you are covered with dignity and beauty. That instead of eternal punishment, you are given eternal life. That you are showered with the grace of God. That you are given his mercy instead of the things that you deserve. You are adopted into the household of God. All of these things happen and are true when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. And if a person realizes that, what happens in that person is that their conduct changes. They stop living for themselves and commit to living for Jesus. And they do so not to gain God's acceptance, but because they have it. They live differently not to gain God's forgiveness, but because God has forgiven them. They do so not to gain acceptance in a relationship with God, but because they have a relationship with God, they live differently. There is a visible change. Their conduct is changed. There is a visible, noticeable difference in their life, and people can see it and see the difference. For the Ephesian Christians the new believers there, the change in their life was so great that it had a profound economic impact on the city, that people were radically living their lives differently. You know, unfortunately today, I think one of the scandals of Christianity today is that Christians don't really live differently than non-Christians, is that their lives look many times almost exactly the same. I think this might be because, you know, sometimes today Christians are concerned about not being associated with some radical firebrand in the media. And so in response, they want to blend in. You know, they don't want to be noticed as different, don't want to be seen as different. But let me press you on that. that. Is your life any different? Is your life any different than than a coworker or a family member or another student? Is your life any different than another person who's not a Christian but who's a really good person? I mean, if they're living for themselves and living for their financial stability and security and to have a good retirement, if they're living for their kids' success and to give their kids the best opportunity possible, how is your life any different except maybe what you do for an hour or two on Sunday mornings? Is the gospel being seen in you? Sometimes there are people who are believers in Christ and they're around really good people and they're around really good people and it doesn't really seem a whole lot different. Unfortunately, there's too many times where there's a stark difference in Christians, where Christians have their church life and then their, their private life. I was at a, at this, with a couple of local businessmen this past week, and I was listening to a Christian there engaged in the coarsest locker room talk of modern parlance, usage of the word coarse, crass jokes he was making. And no less than two minutes later, he was talking about what a joy it is to be a worship leader in his congregation. And how wonderful that is. 
And the gospel calls that there should be a change in our conduct that should be visible. And one of our community group questions asked this week, what are the characteristics of a Christian? How should the gospel be seen in your life? There are many, but here are a few that scripture gives. That your love for other people and those who are your enemies should be confusing. I mean, it should be confusing that people don't understand how someone like you could love someone like that so sincerely and so genuinely. That for Christians, that Jesus said that if you love me, you'll do what I command, that there should be a radical obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ out of love for him that should be noticeable and visible. That, that, that there should be a joy that's contagious and overflowing. He, here's a surprising one. How about sexual conduct? Justin Martyr, who I mentioned last week, he died in the second century as a martyr, and he was defending the Christian faith. And one of his public arguments that he made about Christianity to the pagan rulers and pagan priests, he said, you want to know that Christianity is true? Look at our sexual conduct. Look at the sexual integrity with which believers live their lives. Isn't that a testimony to you that there is a God and that God is at work? What a profound statement. Wouldn't that be a remarkable testimony for the church? Or how about another one? How about that the, the, the Christian marriages were radically different than the marriages in our, in our society? That, 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 as, as, that as Christian men and Christian women are looking to, to date and looking to marry other people and find their spouse, that the number one thing that they're looking for is someone who loves the Lord and of godly character, and that that is most attractive to them, more than, there are, more than their physical appearance, more than their success or their stability in life. I mean, that would be a radical witness to the world. If, a, if people looked at the church, and they looked at the church and the marriages in the church, and from worldly standards, they're like, how did those two get together? What a radical statement. What a radical testimony that the character of believers has changed, that their conduct has changed because they're living for Jesus. The gospel should change our conduct. And as that starts to happen, something even more remarkable happens. It becomes seen. It becomes visible. And when it becomes visible, it subverts our culture. Paul comes into Ephesus, and the description, there is a riot that's about to go underway. And the riot occurs for these reasons. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's what Christians were called. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. We're going to be in Ephesus for a while, so let's understand exactly what's going on here. The city of Ephesus is located in modern-day Turkey. It was a very prominent city and a very prosperous city. If you want to understand the culture of Ephesus compared to other, to other cities at the time, Rome was the seat of political power, maybe a little bit like Washington, D.C., and that's how they regarded themselves, and they were the seat of political power. Athens was the seat of the intellectual hub of the Mediterranean, maybe the way that Boston views itself today. Corinth would be um, kind of like Los Angeles as a culturally progressive community and cultural driver. And Ephesus would be the headquarters and the seat of wealth, finances, and prosperity. A little bit like New York City. It was a huge city even by modern standards today. And Ephesus was known, there was lots of cultic worship, and there were two cults in particular that were worshipped there. One was the imperial cult, that was the worship of the Roman emperor, and also goddess worship. That would be the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. Diana 
was the virgin goddess of hunting, and she was also the fertility goddess. She was known as the great mother goddess and, as, and the fertility goddess. And the reason why she was known as fertility and why that's connected with wealth, because if you remember in an agricultural-based society, fertility equals money. If you are going to have an agricultural-based society, what you need is you need your cows to be fertile, you need your sheep to be fertile, you need your livestock to be fertile, you need your land to be fertile, you need your land to be prosperous. Because as that happens, as fertility occurs, you get more money. And so, she was, Artemis was the leader, the, the goddess who was worshipped for fertility and also for prosperity in particular. And she was housed in the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, an enormous temple. It was four times as large as the Parthenon, had 127 pillars around it. Each of those pillars was 60 feet high. People flocked from all over the Mediterranean to come to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. As a result, there was a substantial economic industry revolving around the Temple of Artemis. In particular, the silversmiths particularly benefited. They were regarded themselves as being under the special patronage of the goddess Artemis. And they made a huge amount of money by making replicas of the temple and shrines, little home altars made out of silver that they would sell. And Demetrius is opposed to what Paul has been doing. He is opposed to Christianity. Now the question that's, I believe that I want us to focus on here this morning is, he's opposed to Christianity, but why? Is he concerned for the truth? Is he concerned about whether Christianity is true or not true? And the answer is, that is not his concern at all. No way. Here is Demetrius' concern. These he gathered together, the silversmiths and the other craftsmen, with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. What's his concern? And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And Paul has been say, as Paul has been saying this. So what Demetrius does is that he is outraged because now, because of the conduct of Christians, fewer people are engaged in the idolatry business. Fewer shrines are being bought and sold. His concern is purely economic, not religious, not moral. He is not concerned for the truth. So he goes on to stage a mass protest. But in staging a mass protest, you know, it always looks bad if, you're, if money is your reason to do that, both then and now. He doesn't want to look greedy. So he stirs up this opposition but focuses on something else. Here is what he focuses on. He says this. They're saying that God made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trait of ours may come into disrepute, professional reputation, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. magnificence. She whom Asia and all the world worship. What is he appealing to? He's appealing to their professional pride and reputation, and he's also appealing to their patriotic pride that the goddess of Ephesus would be robbed of her majesty. Tim Keller comments on this passage, he said, these are just simply code words for plain greedy materialism and xenophobic patriotism. That's That's what's motivating them. You know, I periodically get hear the question and ask the question, the question is this, if Christianity is true, why don't more people believe in it? 
If Christianity is true, why don't more people believe in it? One answer is this. It's because truth is, not, is often not the issue. Truth is often not the issue. I was having lunch with a local um, contractor in our community, and I was sharing the gospel with him. And his comment was this. He says, if Christianity is true, I'm going to need to make some significant changes in my life, and I'm just not ready to think about that yet. The issue is not truth. The issue is lifestyle. He's like, and if there's something that's going to question my lifestyle, it doesn't matter to me if it's true or not. I'm not interested. I'm not ready to think about that yet. You can pray for him, and I would ask that you would. There is this lie today, this, this, this regard for ourselves and our society that people have this altruistic purity in pursuing the truth. And yes, fortunately, there are a lot of people who are interested in the truth. But if the truth comes into conflict with our reputation, with our power, or with our money, most people are far more committed to their reputation, power, and money than they are committed to the truth and the implications of the truth. Certainly the case for Demetrius and his craftsmen, because here's what happens next. When the craftsmen heard all of this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great, is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocrus, Macedonians who are Paul's companions in travel. What happens? Demetrius effectively works up the, the guildsmen and the tradesmen. They rush into the streets shouting out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Temple of the Temple of Artemis is down here on the map. And they rush through the city, most likely on what was known as the Arcadian Way, which was a marble street that paved the city. And they rush through the city and they go into... The theater is where they end up. The theater is still there in, in Turkey today. Theater was estimated to hold 25,000 people uh, inside of this theater. They rush inside of this theater, and as they gather in there, the question then becomes, were they, did they want the truth? Is that what they were after? Well, here's what happens. When Paul wished to go among them, the crowd, the disciples, would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, that is, the Roman rulers, interesting observation, who were friends of Paul's, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come. Now, did the people want the truth? Who knows? What they did know is that there was a mob scene going and they didn't want to, and they wanted, they wanted to be a part of it. And the guildsmen were saying, did they want the truth? No, they wanted this mob scene to take care of Christianity. The opponents were trying to stop the gospel in any way possible. For it to be banned from the public arena as being unpatriotic and subversive to the political order. And might I add that there are opposition forces in the United States today that are trying to get Christianity banned in our country because it is unpatriotic and subversive to the political order. But the Christians, as they gathered together in this mob, were not going to be given a chance to defend themselves. There were no charges. They didn't want charges to be brought against them, but this mob scene. Now, in the midst of this mob scene going on, the Jews really felt that they needed to distinguish themselves from the Apostle Paul and his companions. Because the Jews were known in town as people that they didn't worship the pagan deities anyway. And so they were kind of already on the outs with the Ephesians because they didn't follow the pagan gods. And so the Jews were like, wait a second, we need to let them know that we're opposed to Paul and those Christians too. So here's what's happened. 
Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, notice the racial issues here, when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours. Did they want the truth? No, they're shouting him down. Ancient political rally going on here, right? What is the concern? Do they want the truth? No. But there is something that has happened is that the gospel has become visible in the lives of Christians and the gospel is subverting reputation. It is subverting power. It is subverting money. It is subverting all these things as Christians are living out their faith. And truth is not the issue. You know, I wish that the lust for power and reputation didn't infect Christians and Christianity as well. You know, I wish it was undeniable. I wish that it was undeniably known that Christians were known as being people who are committed to Jesus Christ. Undeniably known that, people were, that Christians were committed to the truth, that they were committed to living as followers of Jesus Christ and not committed to power and not committed to money and not committed to reputation. You know, this past election cycle, there has been one Christian leader who has really grown in, I've really grown in respect for is a man by the name of Rush, Russell Moore. Russell Moore was, is the leader of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptists. And Russell Moore was one of the prominent Christian leaders to speak out against um, the, the things that Christian leaders should be speaking out against, particularly for President Trump now. And he was speaking out against these things just as Christians should speak out the godlessness in any of our elected officials and not pretend that those things are okay with Scripture. And as he was speaking out against this and then as more and more Christian leaders began not only saying, it's one thing for a Christian to say, you know what, I've prayed through this and I've prayed through the biblical values and I've concluded that I'm going I'm to vote for this candidate or I'm going to vote for this candidate or I'm going to vote for this candidate. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing for Christians to, Christian leaders, to justify and defend things that are immoral and directly contrary to Scripture, which many, unfortunately, Bible-believing Christian leaders have done in this last election cycle. And Russell Moore was one of the few leaders who continued to stand against and speak against the things that are contrary to Scripture, particularly as it comes to, uh, as, particularly as it comes to Donald Trump. And what has happened to him is that he has received this substantial groundswell against him. He has been coming under fire for his views. There are many churches that have cut off his funding. There are many churches that have spoken against him and want to get him removed from his position as the leader of ethics. To get him removed from his position as the leader of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and to get him removed because he is out of touch with Christian values. Reflecting on, unfortunately, the infection of Christians' lust for political power as opposed to the gospel subverting it, Russell Moore said this. He said, political power or the illusion of it has not always been good for us when Christians are in power. Such influence has led us to conform our minds to that of the world about what matters and who matters in the long run of history. We should, as missionary Jim Elliott put it, in a generation ago, we should own our strangerhood. 
We should own that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, not citizens of this place. We should own that we are, that first and foremost, we worship Jesus and live for Jesus and our allegiance first and foremost above any national, political, personal reputation that we are, that we are allegiances to Jesus Christ and to him alone and above all else. Interestingly, there was a commentator in the Associated Press who was observing the way that evangelical, prominent evangelical leaders were justifying and arguing and defending uh, actions that were directly contrary to Scripture. And it was this article, and it was noticing what Russell Moore was doing. And Russell Moore's commitment to the truth, his commitment to the gospel, his commitment to living out, the Christ, living out Christian truths and living out Christian principles and holding to biblical truth. And her comment about this was how sad it is to see Christians being infected with a lust for power. And she, interestingly, I find, talks about here is how Christians can have a voice in the society. Here's how Christians can speak Christian truth to political power. She says this, where Christian leaders should be seeking influence, especially in a rapidly secularizing society in which their views seem ever more countercultural, is in trying to remain a respected moral voice worth engaging with, not by setting aside their most distinctive values in a grab for shifting political powers. The most persuasive religious leaders will be those who, like Russell Moore, remain distinguishable from everybody else. Do you hear what she's saying? She's saying the Christians who are going to be most persuasive in the culture, the Christians who are going to be most subversive to the cultural powers, are the Christians for whom the gospel is visible in their life, for whom it is overly, abundantly clear that they are committed to the truth, that they are committed to living for Jesus Christ, that they are living for the gospel and for the gospel to be seen in their life, and they're not living for a drive for power, and that the, 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 the fruit of the gospel can be manifested within them, that their lives are visibly different, especially in everyone's quest for cultural and social power. The gospel should change us. It should change our conduct. It should be visible within us, and being visible within us, it should change our culture. Finally, the other way here that the gospel becomes particularly visible, not really visible, but heard and seen, is the way that the gospel controls our conversation. Look what happens here in the speech after two hours of them shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When the town clerk, clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, most likely a meteorite. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and his craftsmen with him, with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, but let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The town clerk was the executive officer of the civic assembly. But look at his description of the Apostle Paul's words. 
to hear how the gospel has changed this conversation. You have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our godless. They are guilty of no crime. There is no charge that can be brought, no charge that can be brought against them. Remarkable statement. A statement that was sufficient to quiet the crowds and quiet the rioters. And in quieting the rioters, the statement being sufficient, the description of Paul's that he was not sacrilegious, that he was not, he did not blaspheme their God. This it's remarkable because particularly because in in Ephesus there were awful practices that went on. Artemis was the fertility goddess. So to promote fertility in times of drought, there were wild orgies and carousing. carousing. For those that were, if there was a series of, of droughts, there were human sacrifices that were offered, oftentimes accompanying worship, to bring back fertility and to bring back prosperity. And yet he says something that quieted the crowd, that they could not be charged with sacrilege or blaspheme or godness, goddess or disrespecting could not be accused of speaking blasphemously or disrespectfully about the gods of the people they worshipped. One of my evangelism professors, a remarkable man of God, wrote this about this passage. He says, even when Paul's preaching resulted in a riot, even an unbeliever could acknowledge that he had not uttered blasphemy against Diana or dishonored her or her worshippers. His words to them about the religious religion were respectful and were gracious. You see, the gospel controlled their conversation. The gospel led them to speak with grace and respect, no matter who they were talking to. And you see this throughout the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so it begs us to examine ourselves and ask the question, as you speak to what people value, as you speak to what you post on Facebook about things you agree with or you disagree with, as you speak about who other people voted for or who you voted for or who they didn't vote for or who you did vote for? Does the gospel control your conversations? Can non-Christians attest to your graciousness and respectfulness? Can non-Christians attest to the purity and the sincerity of your speech? Can they attest, as the Apostle Paul says, that there's no unwholesome talk that's coming out of your mouths but only such as sufficient for building up the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear? Can that be said of you? Examine your conversations for a moment. Does your conversation ever change when you're around church people? Does it ever change when you're around somebody that you think to be or you regard as more godly than you? Are there conversations that you would have with another person that you would not have in this room? That you would not feel comfortable having in this room? If that's the case... Your conversations need to change. The gospel needs to control your speech. Your life, the gospel needs to be seen in your life and heard from your mouth. That when people see you, it should be visible. It should be noticed that there is something different about this person. That there is something seen in this person. That the gospel is bearing fruit in you. You know, Jesus himself said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That our conduct, that the gospel would be manifest in us and live through us so that our conduct would reflect Jesus Christ. That our conduct would be above reproach. That Christians would be a respected voice 
in a pluralistic society because they're known as people who follow the teachings of Jesus and as people who follow the truth of Jesus Christ. That we would be a people for whom our conversations are gracious and respectful and communicate the truth of who Jesus Christ is. May the gospel be visible in us. May the gospel be seen in us. May others look at us and say, I want to know what makes that person different. May the gospel be seen in us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we worship you. And Lord, we do ask that the gospel would be seen in us. Lord, we ask that our conduct would be remarkable. Not because we're holier than thou, but because the love that we show to our enemies is unfathomable. That people would look at us and say, wow, how can you love somebody so different than you, someone that you disagree with so vehemently? How can you love that person so purely and sincerely? Lord, would your love be present in our lives? Lord, would your love be present in our, would your gospel be present in our integrity? For your word says that if you love me, you will do what I command. That our integrity is unwavering regardless of what's going on and around us and the people around us. Father, we pray that our conversations would give life and bring life to people. That our conversations would be free of vitriol and disrespect. That people would know us and that they would walk away blessed because they have been our presence in our presence because they have heard our speech, because they have come to know you and experience you in a way that they have not seen before. So, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in us. We ask that you would be seen in us. Lord, we ask that Christians would live for you and live for you alone and live for you above all else. And, Lord, we ask that through this, that the name of Jesus Christ would be honored and that those who don't know you would come to know the peace and joy, and forgiveness, and dignity, and mercy, and grace that comes only through a relationship with you. Lord, we ask that you would do this not for the building of our kingdom, but for the building of yours. In the name of Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, and our Savior, we pray. Amen.